What is up, family? Welcome to episode 110 of The Genius Life. What up, what up, what up? What's going on, friends, boys and girls, humans of the world? Welcome to another episode of The Genius Life. I'm your host, Max Lugavere, a filmmaker, health and science journalist, and the author of the New York Times bestselling book, Genius Foods, and The Genius Life. On this episode of the show, I'm very excited to welcome my friend, the brilliant Ellen Vora, MD. Dr. Vora attended Columbia University for medical school and received her Bachelor's of Arts in English from Yale University. She's a board-certified psychiatrist, an acupuncturist, and a yoga teacher. Over the course of the next hour, we're gonna cover a lot of ground. We we had an amazing chat. We talk about fighting depression naturally. We talk about ways of boosting uh, sleep quality and efficacy naturally. We talk about light and how light in certain contexts can actually be toxic and, a, and act as a pro-carcinogen. Um, and we talk about the difference between uh, real food and fake food. This was a, a I had a, a blast uh, taping this with Dr. Vora. And this is one of the first episodes of the show that I actually uh, recorded a video component to. So if you head over to my YouTube channel at youtube.com slash Max Lugavere, you'll actually get to watch the entirety of this episode um, on video. So uh, yeah, go do that. Check that out. I'm also going to be posting clips of this on my Instagram um, at Max Lugavere. And I am very much looking forward to doing more video um, for The Genius Life. And my goal is to ultimately record all episodes um, you know, via video and uh, be able to put them all up on YouTube. And your support for The Genius Life is really going to help me get to do that. So please spread the word about what we're doing. Share this episode of the show with your tribe. Post it up on your Instagram stories. I would very much appreciate that. Um, and uh, yeah, thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Before we dive in, this episode of the show is brought to you by Birch Benders. Birch Benders makes a line of super delicious pancake and waffle mixes. Um, I One of my favorite things about this podcast and uh, having sponsors actually is that I get to let you guys know about cool products that I'm digging um, because I personally really enjoy trying out new products. It's like one of my favorite things to do. I've always actually enjoyed um, whether it's, you know, new supplements or new sort of healthy food products. Uh, I just, I love it. And Birch Benders makes the tastiest pancake and waffle mix I've ever had. And I am comfortable eating them because they are made using really wholesome, super healthy, grain-free uh, ingredients that are not going to make you feel crappy afterwards. The other cool thing about their mixes is that they're very, uh, they lend themselves to a ton of other recipes. I actually made like muffins with their paleo pancake and waffle mix the other day. I just threw some, um, actually you can go to the birchbenders.com and you can check out all kinds of recipes. Uh, I think they have like a pumpkin spice muffin mix. All you need to do is buy their mixes and add water and uh whatever it is that you're making they're super super tasty um and the other day i made like meatballs using their mix instead of uh like almond flour and of course just making pancakes like making pancakes is so fun to do and it would be um kind of depressing to live a life that uh excludes forever pancakes so when you're craving pancakes don't go for the 
mega commercial mixes that are loaded with junk fillers and refined grain flours and unhealthy oils and sugar and the like. Go for birch benders, which is a way, way, way healthier alternative and also super tasty. Um, they've been gracious to give uh, listeners of this podcast a generous discount. If you go to birchbenders.com and use promo code MAX, you'll get to save 20% off of everything and anything in their online store. They have uh, banana uh, pancake mixes, all, you know, paleo. They have uh, keto pancake mixes that are um, even lower in carbs and higher in, in uh, fats. They have toaster waffles, all good stuff. Um, birchbenders.com, promo code MAX, 20% off. Check them out. This episode is also brought to you by my friends at Navitas. Navitas makes a line of shelf-stable um, super simple products like ingre single uh, ingredient items like cacao or cacao nibs or dried golden berries or dried goji berries um, or mulberries. Super, super tasty stuff. I love having them on hand. You could throw dried berries into salads that you're making. Um, I often use their cacao uh, for various things. The other day I made one of those frothed coffee drinks that has been sort of sweeping social media. Actually, I posted a recipe um, on my Instagram very recently, and I like to sprinkle some Navitas cacao on top of that uh, that coffee drink. It's super tasty, and it's a way to work uh, a genius food cacao into your life. Um, if you get tired of eating dark chocolate bars, you can always just make a frothed coffee mix and throw some cacao on top, uh, and there's your, your cacao. Um, so they make a ton of really cool, tasty products and uh, all organic, all uh, for the most part plant-based. I don't, yeah, I think, I, I mean, their products are all plant-based. Um, if you're on a plant-based diet, plant-based diet, and they've given listeners of The Genius Life uh, a very generous 30% off of everything in their online store. If you go to navitasorganics.com, use promo code Genius, you'll get to save 30% off. Um, on anything that they sell. So uh, go and check them out. They rule. We're just seconds away from a chat with Ellen Vora, MD, psychiatrist, brilliant woman. Um, I'm pumped. I want to share uh, this great review that CRI 2016 shared um, on iTunes, on the Genius Life page on iTunes. It was a five-star review that they left for the Genius Life. And Cri 2016 wrote... I just recently discovered this podcast and that's all I'm listening to right now. I love Max's conversation style and I love the content. He's very easy to listen to and I am getting so much good info from this show. Thank you. Thank you, Cri2016. Um, I hope I'm pronouncing your, uh, your username as you intended. Um, but to all you guys who've taken the time to leave a rating and review, I very much appreciate you. Thank you for spreading the word about uh, The Genius Life. That rating and review helps the show rise up the ranks on the iTunes charts. Um, and, uh, if you leave a rating or review, there's a very good chance that I'm going to read it. So, um, if you want to get your review read on the show, then leave one. It's as simple as that. Uh, lastly, you can text me at 310-299-9401 to let me know what you think about this or any other episode of the show. You can join my newsletter at maxlugavir.com where I send out weekly updates, including, um, uh, details and show notes about each podcast episode. Um, and yeah, that's it. Now I'm pumped to get into this chat. Let's rock. 
So, Ellen Vore, I'm super excited to have you here on The Genius Life. It's great to be here, Max. Yeah. Um, this is a long time in the making because I think I, when I first, did we meet before Revitalize? We met once 100 years ago at the Functional Forum. The Functional Forum. Got mm -hmm. it. In New York City. Well, I really was turned on to your work at Revitalize because you were on stage talking about the value of psychedelics, what they're, what seems to be emerging in the literature in terms of the value of psychedelics for mental health. And I just thought you were like, you just were so well-spoken. And I was like, damn, that's a brain that I want like in my orbit. Thanks. Yeah. Yeah. I felt um, a mission really when I was there to represent the whole cause of psychedelics, um, to represent the plants in some sense, because I could feel that room was actually stacked against it. And to me, this is a really important message to get out there, that there's a role for this. Yes, there are caveats. Yes, there are risks. But I felt an enormous uh, imperative and kind of high duty to represent it. So I did my research. It's so cool. Why? Um, I mean, why, why had they interested you, like psychedelics, as a psychiatrist? Um, no, I didn't even come to it thinking about it from the mental health standpoint. I came to it more in my own journey. Oh, wow. And then got really curious, could this possibly have implications for mental health? And then I took a look under the hood of the research, and the research is really solid and really life-affirming and encouraging. Yeah, I... Um I'm super into like the whole like default mode network mm -hmm. thing and how like the psychedelics seem to be able to like reduce activity. And, uh, and you, you totally described it so eloquently. I mean, there's like that spectrum, right? Where people that are prone to excessive rumination and anxiety and things like that, they might have too much activity yeah. in the default mode network. And the psychedelics seem to like, kind of like open up the, like the belt a little bit. Yeah. And it's not all bad, right? It's not like, so to the DMN, the default mode network, it's part of what makes us human. It's part of what makes us hypervigilant and anxious and um, anticipating ne negative consequences. Like it keeps us alive and functioning and with a separate sense of the self, which motivates us to do a lot of, you know, we build buildings and bridges for this. But um, we, I think it's a maladaptation that humans can easily fall into, which is that we're just spending all of our time in that ruminative state. And to just get even a glimpse of the experience of you're not in all DMN mode, um, it, it's transformative for people to just see a, a glimpse of what it feels like to feel a sense of oneness with things beyond themselves, to not feel so entrenched in those patterns of rumination, anxiety, depression. Yeah. And what is the deep, I mean, for listeners who are hearing the term for the first time, what is, is it a structure? Is it like a, what, what is it? That's above my pay grade. So it's the way I think about it, it does correlate with structure, but it's more like a function in the brain. And it's basically, I think of it when I'm sitting across from a patient, say with obsessive compulsive disorder, OCD, I think of that as like an example of DMN behavior. It's basically when we are stuck in ruminative loops and when we're really thinking thinking of ourselves in this narrow definition of the self, thinking of ourselves as separate from others, which is part of the design seemingly of the human brain. It keeps us alive and working hard. And, you know, the ego isn't all bad, mm -hmm. but I think that it does make us feel more isolated, less connected, a little bit um, less hopeful and th th less meaning in life. Yeah. Super interesting. It's, I've heard it described as like, you know, a brain that is constrained by excessive order. Yeah. You know, yeah. and then a little bit of disorder can help kind of like alleviate symptoms of, you know, of depression, anxiety, but then 
at the other end of the spectrum, you have conditions like schizophrenia, which is like excessive disorder. And so it's just the perfect example. And again, you you know, you nailed it, but it's like, there is no one size fits all approach with these drugs because, you know, if you're prone to psychosis, maybe then those kinds of drugs might be like the wrong move. Exactly. And you had Michael Pollan himself on here to talk about this. And, but I think that that's exactly right is that we're all somewhere along that spectrum from chaos in our brains to really rigidly stuck. And, um, so these medications I think can be really helpful, beneficial for someone who's really stuck in entrenched patterns like depression, anxiety, OCD, substance abuse, um, certain relationships to trauma. Um, but if you already have a chaotic brain, um, if someone's already having auditory hallucinations or, um, really swinging wildly between bipolar states, then you don't want to introduce more chaos into that system. You actually want to get that person more to a level place. Yeah. Well, I introduced you at the top as a holistic psychiatrist. Mm -hmm. um, very curious to know like what, you know, what your job entails, like what, what kinds of things do you focus on in your, in your practice? You're like what the heck does that term yeah. mean? Who made that up? I think Kelly Brogan, our mutual friend. Oh, she's cool. She's awesome. <laughs> she's great. Um, she's a friend and a colleague and a hero of mine. Yeah. So holistic psychiatrist, I've started to use that term because I'm a conventional psychiatrist by training, went through medical school at Columbia, went through psychiatry residency. I was really disenchanted with what I was being taught throughout that process. And I felt like I was really well-trained to put people on a cocktail of medications. Uh, I didn't really get the sense that I was helping my patients thrive. And it sort of parallel to all of that, my own health was completely spiraling out of control. And so I was on a journey of how do I help my patients actually thrive and achieve a state of balance? How do I get my own body into some state of balance where I can poop and don't have acne and get my period every month and can focus and everything that was just like all the springs were busting out of the machine in my body. And it, it drove me to hoard different trainings, basically, to explore all the different ways that cultures around the world approach healing. So I studied Chinese medicine and acupuncture and Ayurveda and functional medicine and nutrition. And I became a yoga teacher because like, like you do, and probably a few other trainings as well. And this ended up meaning I just have this toolbox of different ways of thinking when someone walks into my office and they're out of balance, how do I assess that? How do I make sense of what's out of balance? And then what tools do we use to get them on a path toward balance? So the best way I can describe holistic psychiatry, everyone has a different interpretation, but you're definitely thinking about the whole person. You're thinking about how they wake up in the morning, what they eat, how they move, what's their relationship to the people in their life, to their job, to their geography, to sunshine, to laughter, to sex. And I'm thinking about all of this. And it's, it has features of functional medicine, root cause resolution rather than symptom suppression. Hmm, I love that. I feel like most people when they, um, you know, or at least the stereotype when most people show up at a psychiatrist's office, it's a very brain centric, you know, mo treatment modality. Like you get typically prescribed a drug that is, that is, you know, hopes to raise levels of a certain neurotransmitter and then you typically get sent on your way. Um, this seems like a much broader approach. Yeah, we're ready for a new story, right? So psychiatrists, um, in an effort to legitimize our science, we've tried to ground it in um, making it an objective science 
when the human experience, the brain, the mind, it never, it's never quite so simple. But yeah, we're, we're trained to be very neck up. And that's all of Western medicine, right, is to fragment the body and think of it in these discrete organs. Like you're a nephrologist, you've got the kidneys, and a cardiologist has the heart, and a psychiatrist thinks about the brain. But so does a neurologist, but in a different way. And and in a way, like Chinese medicine, Ayurveda, these older systems, I feel like just look at this and laugh. Like, it's crazy. It's completely bananas. And we have no understanding of all the delicate and broad interconnectedness of all of these different parts of the body. Um, the body-mind connection, the fact that when you do yoga and you're stretching and you might even release certain stuck emotions from, say, your hips, like that's that that's not just taken for granted at this point is wild to me. But so, yeah, the, the, the mind, um, it goes well beyond the physical constraints of our skull. And it's we are a complete interconnected web of things that impact our moods and, and impact um, how we function cognitively. Yeah. So many people today are struggling with depression. Mm -hmm. And one of the prevailing theories as to why people get depressed has been called the chemical imbalance yeah. theory of depression. Um, and you, what you offer is sort of a new twist on that. Can you describe like the old theory mm -hmm. um, and then like what you know, sort of what your model, what your working model is for depression. Yeah. So for those of us who were alive and cognizant in the 90s, we were all taught the chemical imbalance approach, the understanding of depression with Zoloft commercials. That's where I learned it. Right? Mm. And it was like these little happy little bubbles and, um, you know, a bubble got sad and then took Zoloft and it, you know, increased the bubbles of serotonin. And then that bubble was happy. And it's like this little cute cartoon. And as if the brain could be so simple, I'd be fully on board with that. But nothing ever is. If you move one liver in the brain, you're moving everything else. And there is, first of all, it's, um, I worked in a, in a neuroscience neuroimaging lab at Columbia for a year when I did a research fellowship in the middle of med school. And, um, if any lab was going to demonstrate the chemical and the so-called chemical imbalance of depression, this lab was going to get it. It was such a fantastic functioning lab. Um, but I remember how abstract and intangible and vague and not exactly there this chemical imbalance was. And yeah, you could find sort of like on the margin, maybe you see little changes in metabolites of serotonin and the cerebral spinal fluid of relatives of somebody who committed suicide. But it was always a stretch. And what I, you know, I was disenchanted with this idea that these medications are really the solution. I think that the chemical imbalance approach is more marketing than scientific fact. And there's also the fact that these meds, if they really corrected this so-called chemical imbalance, they'd work better than they do. Hmm. Um, they don't separate from placebo in mild to moderate depression. That's an inconvenient truth that should be more widely understood, um, just in the name of informed consent that when we start someone on a medication, they should know the whole story. Uh, is this really benefiting you? Is it mainly a placebo? Which would be fine. I'd be fully on board with leveraging the placebo effect if these were truly benign medications. But unfortunately, they have side effects, they have potential adverse effects. And then to me, most damning of all is that they're really difficult to get off of. Mm. Um, but so a different way of thinking about depression is at least in the literature, you have this competing hypothesis of the cytokine hypothesis of depression, which is thinking about inflammation in the brain. The brain is a fleshy piece of meat in our body like anything else. And if we are inflamed in our body, which we all are, then we're inflamed in our brain. And for a long time, we had this 
really misguided belief that the immune system doesn't impact the brain. That's false. And so when we're inflamed, we have cytokines, we have inflammatory markers impacting our brain. And that tells our brain we're sick, we're out of balance. And like everything, we have things that we adapted to in more like proverbial savanna conditions that mm -hmm. are now maladaptations. So on the proverbial savanna, if you're inflamed, maybe you just got a bug. Maybe you drank the wrong water from like downstream from where the elephants were pooping. And you should go to a cave and retreat from the tribe and rest and you're probably not that interested in eating. You're probably going to have disrupted sleep schedule. You're probably not that interested in socializing or sex. It looks a lot like depression. Hmm. And you stayed there until you healed. And the only difficult thing about this applied to modern life is that it's not an infection that we just need a couple of days of rest to heal from. It's like every time we take a bite of anything in the modern American diet, we're re-inflaming ourselves. So it's like a pesky bug that our immune system can't beat. And that's part of why we're just so chronically inflamed, why it escalates, why our immune system sometimes goes rogue. I think it relates to autoimmune disease. And it just leaves us depressed and anxious and ADHD and bipolar. And so that's one competing model. In my practice, I think about inflammation a lot, but I think about like 100 other factors as well. Wow. I mean, there's so much there that like major depression could be an extreme form of like sickness behavior. That's what the, these yeah. are, right? Like exactly. zoologists are well like, you know, aware yeah. of these behavioral, you know, and mood changes in animals um, when they get infected and sick. And yet for us, it just seems like, you know, we're so late to the game. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, what we call depression with anhedonia and disrupted sleep and decreased appetite and you don't want to socialize and you're not interested in sex, like it really in many ways could just be um, a maladapted application of sick behavior. Wow. Fascinating. So what kinds of things then in your clinic do you, do you test for? I mean, do you look... Do you do, as a psychiatrist, do you do blood work? I am not Mrs. Blood Test, I have to tell oh. you. So, I mean, I was sort of came of age in a functional medicine training and learned how to test and learned how to come up with a pretty thorough and bespoke supplement regimen. But the further I get into my practice, the further away from that I get. So every once in a while, I'll do some light blood testing and I will look at things like B12 levels and folate levels and maybe highly sensitive CRP or homocysteine levels. Um... Um, I definitely like a thorough picture of the thyroid function, but I don't go much deeper than that. And when I feel like someone really does need, say, a SIBO breath test or something like that, I'll usually refer out and have them see a functional medicine internist or a naturopath. But overall, I like to keep things feeling a little bit less medical in my practice. Um, and that's by design because what I've learned is that um, I guess I'm not just a different application of the objective masculine medical practice. Like I feel like sometimes functional medicine just takes that same um, like very exert control over the body, but just does it in a more enlightened way. But I'm taking a very feminine approach to mental health at this point. And so it's much more energetic. It's much more helping somebody really go into the jungle and explore their unconscious. And it's a little bit less about like, oh, it's your vitamin D level. We can just supplement with that and you're good to go. Yeah. It's, uh, I love to hear that. I feel like in functional medicine, um, there, there's a lot of testing and I don't know how much of it is, you know, necessarily, you know, evidence-based. Um, I feel like, it, you know, a lot of these, you know, many practitioners, not all, but many will take like this sort of kitchen sink approach and it gets very expensive. Yeah. 
And it can be a little bit elitist for that reason because yep. it's like, who's who can afford that? Yeah, it's a big problem. And I have two other objections to it. I think one thing is that um, I used to put people on these really extensive regimens of supplements. But I think that there is something about swallowing back a bunch of pills, not to mention the additives and the weird, all the weird gelatin casing and everything. But I think it puts you in a sick role. Like it makes you feel like a patient to be like, got to take my supplements. And then you're standing there swallowing pills. And I don't really want people to be in that mindset. I think it's important to feel well and to kind of just keep building towards feeling well. Um, and I also think that when we put all the power in objective numbers, we're really taking the power away from our own ability to listen to our bodies, to tune into that, to intuit how we're doing. Um, I feel like at this point, I can like intuit my vitamin D level <laughs> based on like how much I'm craving the sun. Hmm. And so, and I think that I want to help dust off that line of connection with their own bodies for my patients. Yeah. Vitamin D is super important. Um, and I think it's really... Uh, interesting. I, I, I write about vitamin D quite a bit in my um, in my new book, The Genius Life, and uh, I talk about the fact that you know vitamin D is crucially important. I mean, it's like you know it controls what a thousand genes in the human mm -hmm. body, five percent of the genome. But actually, for vitamin D to get created, to get to get transformed into its active steroid. Uh, form in the body, it requires magnesium. Yeah. And magnesium is like something that 50% of us don't even consume adequate amounts of. Yeah. yeah. We're all deficient in magnesium because our food is deficient because our soil is deficient. And so who among us is actually adequately supplementing with magnesium? That is one pill I usually want people to take, especially my patients with anxiety or insomnia. But vitamin D, I have a little bit of an emerging controversial view that I've been exploring around vitamin D, which is that <clears throat> like I used to put everyone on a nice liquid vitamin D, K2, but now I think that I actually do think that sunshine is the best way to get our vitamin D. I mm -hmm. think it's different when our own cells, the melanin in our cells, manufactures the vitamin D rather than when we're taking it in supplemental form. And I think that's controversial, obviously, because there's the skin cancer risk, and this has to be balanced. This is a highly conserved aspect of our genome. Like That's one of the things that evolves most quickly is actually skin color when populations migrate, you know, if, if a population migrated from like northern Russia to the subcontinent, um, their skin took on melanin more at the outer, it's not more melanin, it's actually just at the outer edge of the cell, that evolved really quickly because there's this narrow therapeutic index between whether or not you get enough vitamin D from the amount of sun you're exposed to and whether or not you get skin cancer. Mm. And I think that at least in our kind of modern American world, I think that we've thrown the baby out with the bathwater a little bit. Like we appreciate that vitamin D is important, but we're also afraid of letting the sun touch our skin, whether it's for vanity reasons and aging or just the feeling of skin cancer risk. But you'll see everyone slather so much sunblock on themselves, on their kids, no matter the melanin con constituency of their skin. And I think that... Um, I think we go kind of to extremes. We're like pale, 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 and then you go to Mexico on your vacation and then you burn. And I think in a way, low levels, like safe levels of a little bit of sun exposure throughout the year, to me is healthier and safer. And, um, and I think that a little bit more natural vitamin D in certain ways is cancer protective. So it gets very complicated when you think about skin cancer risk. Yeah, but all, I mean, think about what, like what if you're, getting lots and lots of sun, but you're not at the same time consuming adequate totally. magnesium, yeah. which by the way, we know is required for all of the body's 50 DNA repair enzymes, yeah. you know, and DNA damage is like at the root, you know, one of the potential root causes for cancer. 
So you're like getting all this sun, you're not consuming adequate magnesium, but then take a person who's getting lots and lots of sun and then give them adequate, you know, or they're eating adequate yeah. magnesium, they're probably going to be protected. And they've been... And they win, yeah. Yeah, they win. And then my patients who don't want to swallow a horse pill of magnesium, um, a really nice way to take your magnesium is actually an Epsom salt bath. And that's hmm. why, that's kind of how you can like supplement with it through your skin. Wow. Uh, they also make these different magna gels, which... I don't know. I don't really tolerate them. But for people who do, that's an easy way to take magnesium. Yeah, like get into an Epsom salt bath. It gets in through through the skin. Mm -hmm. That's amazing. Mm -hmm. And it's relaxing and helps relax your muscles. And it's a pleasant thing. And it's quote unquote self-care, which is a concept we should talk about. Yeah, let's talk about Let's talk about all the things. Okay. <laughs> so for people who are like, uh, you know, who want to... So for people who are like battling depression, um, anxiety... Uh, things like that. Let's we'll, we'll tackle one at a time. But yeah, what are some things that people can do to feel less depressed? I feel like depression is something that like, and and also how do we know when it's like when the depression that we're feeling is like a normal part of like the human experience versus mm -hmm. like when it's like clinical. I love that question. Yep. So that's exactly the concept behind the book I'm writing right now on anxiety, which is that there's all of this um, preventable, unnecessary dips in our mood <clears throat> and anxiety that we could avoid. And it's better to not be depressed in those ways, to be anxious in those ways. And then there's some remaining deep feeling that is sort of our compass and our guide that helps us navigate our life choices. And you don't actually want to, nor could you ever eradicate that through better vitamin D and magnesium supplementation. And so um, you kind of have to discern like what is the unnecessary depression and anxiety that we can manage? And then what is the real stuff that we want to listen to? So in terms of managing the unnecessary, depression and anxiety are, are slightly two different categories. Like with anxiety, I always think about it as anxiety in, in many ways is the it's a stress response in the body. And you want to avoid unnecessary stress responses. And that can be keeping your blood sugar stable. That can be avoiding excess caffeine. That can be making sure that you got adequate sleep and making sure you have um, you sort of get conscious of your choices around alcohol and coffee and then um, and exercise plays a role too there. And it's a little bit of a nuanced role because I think not all exercise helps m mitigate stress response in the body. Some people are actually giving themselves a stress response with certain kinds of intense workouts. Hmm. And then depression is a sort of a different story, but I think that um, I really like the term from Julia Ross, which is called false mood, which is like there's um, – like a real mood is like something just happened in your life. You lost somebody you loved, you got fired, and you're in a mood. And that's a real mood. And there's no need to do anything about that. You want to feel your feelings. But a false mood is when your blood sugar is crashing, but instead you actually just feel despairing and anxious. And it's like you know, you're picking fights with your partner. Everything feels terrible. But it's really just that your blood sugar crashed because of what you ate a few hours earlier. So those are false moods. And those can be really handled by diet and lifestyle changes. So for depression, um, I give people this buffet of things to choose from. And I want to say that at the outset, because sometimes I'll list like, here are the 50 things you can do to help yourself feel less depressed. And if anybody here is depressed, it's like you can barely get out of bed in the morning. So the idea of like this little chipper doctor being like, here are the 50 things you should do right now. It's like, oh, brother, and you don't <laughs> even want to start at all. So it's a, it's a buffet and you reach for the thing that feels most accessible, most doable for you right now. And any shift will make it easier to make the next shift and so on and so forth. So it starts with 
with prioritizing sleep. That's usually kind of a nice one. Sleep is free. It's great for our health and our longevity and our mood and our creativity and our patience and everything. Um, it don't cost a thing. We all kind of want more of it. But we I don't think it's that we don't prioritize it. Some people don't prioritize it. I think a lot of people prioritize it and struggle to get good quality sleep. So I like to set people up for success with sleep. That's things like getting the phone out of the bedroom, um, getting strategic about caffeine consumption, getting strategic about light in the evening, um, <clears throat> maintaining stable blood sugar overnight. And then um, exercise is just as good, if not better, than any medication we have for depression. Um, but it's hard to do. So my big thing on this is to lower people's standards for mm. exercise because we're very all or nothing in how we think about it. It's like if you're not joining a gym and getting a trainer and doing high intensity interval training mixed with intermittent fasting and CrossFit, like then, you know, just give up. It's not worth it. And what I've been, I used to be such an avid exerciser. I would go to yoga. It was like a door to door two hour experience. I have a busy practice and a four year old that's not happening anymore. So now I do about five, maybe 10 minutes of Pilates or yoga in my living room some days of the week. Hmm. And it's not perfect but it's sustainable and I've been doing it for four years. And it's something. It's something. And it does boost my mood. So I really like to encourage my patients to get their standards much lower and just do something that's pleasant. And bonus points, if it involves any kind of like endorphins, like if it's dancing, if you put on Whitney Houston and dance, like that's a great thing to do. Or getting outdoors and getting a little fresh air and sunshine. Maybe you just take a brisk walk, but something very doable. Um, and then food is kind of the keys to the kingdom when it comes to mood disorders, but that's easier said than done. And I like to, I mean, I love getting into the weeds of like the nuance of diet and I could talk about that for, we could talk about that definitely for a long time. But, um, mostly I think the compass is eat real food and avoid fake food. Mm -hmm. And if you're generally erring on the side of eating real food, you're going to be eating anti-inflammatory foods, you're going to be eating nutrient-dense foods, and if people need more instruction within that, you kind of want to, sometimes we need, we all need so much re-education when it comes to food, like we kind of get now to stop slandering fat, to stop slandering cholesterol, red meat, but um, I think still people need a re-education of like what's a balanced plate, because it's not just what you eliminate, but it's like what you add in and make sure you're actually getting all of the macronutrients in adequate proportions and you're actually getting all the micronutrients. And I think we're all walking around like overfed but undernourished because we have lost all touch with traditional food culture. We don't know how to feed ourselves. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Um, I mean, I like the term fake food a lot and, you know, I'm, t I'm completely aligned, but it's so funny. Have you ever come across these people on like the internet that are like junk food apologists? Mm -hmm. Basically, they're like, you can't call, you know, there's no such thing as fake food. It's mm -hmm. food. Like mm -hmm. some family out there is eating that for dinner and that's, that's, you can't call that fake. Totally. You're putting a moral judgment on food. I'm like... Well, yeah. What's your opinion? I, I can, you know, offer mine, but I mean, like, what's your, what's your take on that? Yeah. I mean, I think that, um, if like people, you can always find some technicality to be like, and your so-called real food is just chemicals too, right? Yeah. Like, but I think that, um, 
to me, it's always about like, who's selling you something, you know, like, I think that like big Apple is not like, they don't have deep pockets and they're not like like, here trying to steer us all towards like more kale and more Apple, whatever. I think that like, there's just such a powerful lobby and such a big food industry. And they really get to call all the shots because we're not a society that has a traditional food culture passed down, like through generations of mothers. And we basically sold that out to the highest bidder. So our idea, like we grew up on like, you know, all part of a balanced breakfast. It's like cereal and orange juice and skim milk and like a piece of toast. And it's basically, um, I think that I just like people to rebel the default mainstream choices. And um, even though it feels cool, it feels mainstream, it feels to be not precious to just like eat the normal food that's out there. That works for some people. It works now for some people. It might not be you're setting yourself up for the best health for your life. But for people like me, for people like my patients, it's literally just not working. And so you don't feel well. So it's not like we want to go gluten-free in order to be annoying at a restaurant. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like I would eat pizza if I could. But some people have figured out if I make these very upstream choices and eat in a pretty deliberate way, um, I feel well. And then I can go about my life and fulfill my dreams. And so when someone's trying to tell me, like, you know, just eat the damn whatever processed food, it's like you've been bought, you know, you're being very effectively marketed to that you think that's what's cool and that's what's real and that's what's normal. Like that is make-believe food. Somebody created that and, and genius scientists figured out how to figure out like make maximal bliss points so that you would eat this and want to buy more and overeat on it. So you'd have to buy more quicker. And um, I don't know. I don't like being a sucker. Yeah, no, you're completely right. I mean, and also so many people are buying foods that they're that they're led to believe they need when they don't need them because it's all marketing anyway. And I think it's all I think what we're doing, like educating people about what is real food and how to recognize what is not real food. I mean, I think that's such a vital in part, such a vital part of the problem, because by eating real food. Your mood is going to be lifted, mm-hmm. you know, your overall cognitive abilities. I mean, we know how important food is for having healthy executive function, which is important for, you know, find, for professional success. And so, yeah, I mean, I, I couldn't agree more. I'm, I'm all about helping people better recognize what is real, real food versus what is not. I mean, if you think about it, like Play-Doh is non-toxic, right? <laughs> it's actually gluten. Is it gluten? <laughs> and food coloring. Yeah. Wow. I didn't even know that. Yeah, it's but dough. is Play-Doh food? Because some it people out there ball. might, yeah. So, so I mean, I don't think it's food. But if your if your definition of food is so blurry that you're willing to welcome with open arms like these ultra processed junk foods and say you can't call them fake food, that's real food, then you should be saying that feed your kids play doh. You know, and then in our bubble, people go too far the other way too, right? And um, that's true. You'll see like this sort of new epidemic of orthorexia, where people are like, "Okay, I'm eating clean, so clean," and then they start saying no to social engagements, and then it really just spirals into its own eating disorder. Right. And um, I think that you kind of have to keep coming back to the intention of why are you eating in a particular way. The goal was never just to like have the most particular precious snowflake awesome clean diet for the sake of that. It's always, um, to me, it's always a dance with like you want to make yourself feel a certain way so that you can go forward and live your life, fulfill your dreams, 
carry out your mission, your dharma, your purpose, whatever it is, your highest expression, and just feel good and be happy. And so I think that, you know, it's a really delicate balance when my patients are coming to me and we're troubleshooting around food and they're like, I don't want to not go to this wedding happy hour or this dinner with friends, but it's at a restaurant where I don't tolerate any of those foods. Um, to me at this point, like my patients have their PhD and how do you navigate those kinds of real life situations? But I usually encourage people to err on the side of you have to live life. So social connection is probably better for your health than any amount of avoiding gluten and dairy and sugar. Mm -hmm. And so, well, I don't know, it's debatable. But I think that we, we miss social connection. We miss ease. Um, I think that we are just like such a culture where we're sold fear on every corner. And in some ways we've applied that to eating where it's like to fear the world and fear food and um, feel so fragile and like we're under attack from all these different directions. And that mindset will just make us sicker. Yeah. So how do we, I mean, you know, what we don't want to do is fear monger, but we also want to be able to offer empirical truths, you know, as, as educators. Um, it is the reality that we live in now. A lot of people are, you know, have disordered eating and things like that. Um, so what's, what's the answer in terms of like the educational tip? Like how do we, yeah. how do we like get this message out there in a way that is not promoting fear-based choices, yeah. but just like choices that are more motivated by like, oh, I want to feel optimal. I deserve to feel optimal. So I'm going to, you know, eat these blueberries instead of this bag of pretzels. Yeah. I think it comes with um, building in a certain amount of wiggle room. And I think the definitive solution is actually changes in government policy. Like right now, all the incentives are stacked towards um, addicting us all to foods that make us sick. And some people get more sick and some people get less sick from those foods. But like that's what's being driven at us in every direction. That's what's cheap and addictively delicious and ubiquitous and it's everywhere and it's at eye level and it's in a shiny package. And so um, it's a very upstream, uphill battle to avoid that and eat in a conscious, proactive way. But I think that for me at least, I've done a lot of work to generally eat real food, nutrient-dense food at home. And like that's where I can really control the sourcing. So that's where I feel comfortable eating meat because I can source from places where there's ethical animal husbandry. And it's like, you know, it's to me like I don't want to engage in CAFO meat. Like I don't want to be at a restaurant and just be like, oh, I eat meat. So I'm going to just order that because if it's not like in bold italic saying this is from peekaboo farms and the Catskills, like that's um, concentrated animal feeding operation meat. And to me, I don't want to engage in that unethical practice and the environmental impact and so on and so forth. So at home, I control what's happening. That's where I eat real food. And then out in the world is where there's just more flexibility because there has to be. And little by little, maybe I try to steer social engagements towards restaurants that have more ethical sourcing of their food, use better quality cooking fats. But sometimes I can't. And then I show up and sometimes I just wing it and order what looks most healthy on the menu. Sometimes I'll like I used to call ahead and be like, what can I eat that's gluten free, dairy free, and sugar free, and like <laughs> no vegetable oils at a restaurant. And like if they didn't hang up on me, they'd be like, I don't know, like, you can just order vegetables and rice. <laughs> so I think that, you know, you can do whatever preparation helps you feel comfortable. But then at a certain point, you just go out and you eat the food and you remind yourself you're not that fragile. And um, it's never about being 100%. I'll caveat that by saying I have patients who are recovering from eating disorders. And... I think there's an interesting relationship between like a paleo or real foods diet and eating disorders to someone who's eating Doritos and like 
cupcakes, they think that the paleo diet is an eating disorder. For a lot of my patients, when they were just eating in a normal way, they they had an intolerance to a lot of those foods, typically gluten and dairy, and it was inflaming them. And for whatever interesting reason, it was making them overeat on those foods and get into a drug restriction binge relationship with those foods. And so for them, actually abstaining from foods like gluten, dairy, sugar, and processed foods, that's what actually got them freedom from their eating disorder, which has been an interesting thing for me to witness in my practice. So, Because the orthodoxy in eating disorder treatment is always to avoid restriction, everything in moderation. But I've found that actually you put somebody on a more paleo template diet and they suddenly develop freedom around eating. They experience satiety. They experience hunger. They start to learn how to discern the difference between those two states. And they're not just driven by a drug relationship to food. I value that perspective so much. That's really, really interesting to know. Um, I want to go back just uh, quickly to sleep because we talked about that and how important that is. And one of the most common questions that I get asked are from moms mm-hmm. and dads, but I mean, primarily moms that are that hear all the time how important sleep is, right? Yeah. But uh, but they have like kids, like newborns sometimes that just like prevent them. And I think you're the first sleep expert that I've had on my podcast who is a, a, a female and also you have a kid. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, how did you like knowing everything that you know about sleep, how did you balance that, those obligations? <laughs> Woman, mom, doctor, sleep expert. Yeah. So, um, well, I think that it is, it is like a little bit of a, not a pet peeve, but I, I have a, I have an interesting reaction when I see people lecture me about sleep and I look at their lives and it's, it's kind of reminds me of like a yoga enunciate who like gets to go live on a mountaintop and meditate all day. It's like, yeah, you could perfectly optimize your life because nobody depends on you. you know? <laughs> and it's like, you do your 18 hour a day, like intermittent fasting and perfect balance of high intensity interval training and weightlifting. And like, you've got it and you're nailing it. Keto, you do it. But like introduce the householders, like the real world pulls on our attention and our time. And to me, that's where it gets fun because I I would much prefer trying to optimize within constraints than just like get carried away with optimization when there is no constraint. I think it gets kind of crazy. So um, one thing is that newborns are um, that's temporary. And so it really is bad and it really is built into the system. Like I do feel like you have a bit of a hormonal change to your brain. So you you can tolerate some amount of sleep deprivation better than you would if you were in a different phase of your life, if you didn't have those hormones supporting it. That is not to say it like feels good or <laughs> like every time that cry wakes you up at three in the morning, you're like, God damn it. I love you, but God damn it. You're so cute. Good thing they're cute. But the thing is, is that, so that's temporary. And then I think it is worth really focusing on how do you get this kid to sleep and how do you get yourself to get adequate sleep. And those things work in tandem a bit. I think a lot of the same strategies work for both. For my daughter, um, so sleep training is controversial. That's a controversy. There's like attachment parenting that, you know, says maybe you're up and doing feeding on demand and all of that all through the night. Maybe you're co-sleeping. Sleep training is like you put the kid in and through some various approaches to it, you you train the kid to self-soothe and put themselves back to sleep. So I'll admit, and it's controversial, but we did end up sleep training our daughter. And so um, that was a game changer. And we started sleeping, like it really sleep trained us. And so we all started sleeping in the household after we did that. But also we're very conscious about her exposure to blue spectrum light after sunset and her blood sugar overnight. And um, 
to me, like those were the most effective troubleshootings around her sleep. Um, it's always so physiologic. Like we think that these dramas of human health are, you know, like some big insurmountable problem, but you just go back to the fundamentals of physiology. Like, is this kid hungry? Is their blood sugar crashing? Are they reacting to light? Um, are they dehydrated? Do they have a fever? You kind of go through those things. Do they need to poop? And so um, we keep my daughter's blood sugar really stable overnight through feeding in a pretty particular way. And then she doesn't really get to see light. Like it's pretty Game of Thrones in our apartment after huh. sunset and it works. And then we apply those same metrics to ourselves. And the thing I've always struggled with is sleep procrastination. So even since becoming a parent, I will, like we all do it, right? It's like one last thing. I have to finish this thing for work. I want a minute to myself. I want to watch one more show, whatever it is. And it was only recently that I finally figured out how to stop sleep procrastinating because I knew I should be in bed like 10, 1030, but instead I was getting in bed 1115, 1145, you know, which is better than college days where I was like the 2 a.m. to 10 a.m. sleeper. <laughs> um, but uh, I basically started to realize that that last half an hour of so-called productivity or so-called me time was squandering my entire next day because then I was just feeling half awake and grumpy and irritable and not functioning my best and not doing right by my patients the next day. So I really finally just, that's what motivates me now. And I think for parents to actually realistically get good quality sleep, we, we do have to work on our own sleep procrastination. And it's that much harder when you're parents because you have no time to yourself, but to shut it down, shut down the phone, the Instagram, the computer, whatever it is, even doing the dishes, even life logistics, shut it down so you can get in bed at the right time will make the whole next day feel better and it all just goes more smoothly. Wow, such good advice. Sometimes when I am watching TV too late uh, into the evening, um, and you know, I'll admit my brother, whose house I watch, I do all the binge watching at. He's sort of got like the Luke of your hub in LA. Like we all go to his house. He's got this huge TV. It's like eighty something inches, and uh, it's just massive. And so whenever it's like a daytime scene on that TV, it's like boom, your brain thinks it's like daytime yeah. as well because yeah. it's a big TV. And sometimes I, the next day, will feel hungover mm -hmm. from that. I have yeah. like literally a light hangover yeah. the next day. Yeah, the balance of cortisol and melatonin is really the key to sleep. And there's no like, this isn't rocket science. It was a good design. There was a board meeting of evolution where they're like, how should we make humans feel awake and tired? And someone was like, I don't know, should we use light? That seems like a pretty foolproof system. Like then during the day, it'll be light and they'll be awake. And then at night, it'll be dark and they'll be tired. And everyone was like, good idea. You know, Genius. I, yeah, I respect that. Um, and then it got totally jacked up <laughs> with the advent of electricity, which I wouldn't take back. Like this has been pretty rad, right. but, um, it, we just now have to outsmart it because it's jacked up all of our sleep circadian rhythms. So in a way you just have to understand that, um, light basically suppresses our melatonin. Melatonin is this hormone that makes us feel tired, but it also gives us good quality sleep, deep sleep. It helps our immune system attack colds and it helps us, um, fight cancers that's growing in our body. And and so you really want to protect melatonin. It's kind of an endangered species of modern life. Like it's this shy little crab that retreats into its cave with any sign of light. And so, and then um, when you're suppressing melatonin with light, you're also increasing cort cortisol or stress hormone. And so you want to use light strategically, which is both to open up the blinds, get outside. Maybe you don't wear sunglasses during the day. You make sure that you actually give that signal to your brain. This is daytime, feel energetic. But then after sunset, the more you 
can Game of Thronesify your life, and by by that I mean like candles and not artificial light, um, and not an eighty inch. TV with a daytime scene, um, that is going to send a light signal through your eyes to the suprachiasmatic nucleus of the brain that says, good morning, it's 8 a.m., the sun is rising, and it's not. And so then your brain's like, really? Okay. Suppress melatonin, secrete cortisol. And um, this is kind of just it. Like I have patients who they just correct for this in their life and their insomnia um, is a thing of the past. And there was an interesting, in New York, we had Hurricane Sandy years ago, which was a devastating hurricane, a lot of problems. And But one thing I noticed is that for people who lived so-called SOPO, south of power, where mm. there was no electricity, um, I still went to work that day. And patients showed up and like, you know, I've never slept better <laughs> than I wow. am without electricity. Partly they were bored, but um, partly it was, no, truly in New York City, a place with ambient light that basically looks like daytime, um, there was no light pollution, there was no electronic devices. We were all getting the real signal of darkness after sunset. Yeah. Do you keep your bedroom, like, totally, totally pitch black? Like, so blackout shades are this thing that I always thought was for grown-ups. Like, that seemed like way too much of an ordeal to do. And then when I finally did it, it's actually less expensive and less of an ordeal than I ever thought. So I really strongly recommend it. It's better than even just the eye mask, like, getting a blackout shade. Um, so, yeah, our, our bedroom is, like, walk off a cliff dark at night and cold and all the things and white noise. We do it all. You do it all. Yeah. I like when you were talking about melatonin that you mentioned that melatonin, you know, because this is a nuance that sometimes gets lost in the conversation about melatonin and sleep, that melatonin has all these side hustles. You know, mm-hmm. it's an important antioxidant. It helps fight cancer. And so that that basically means that at the at the latter end of the day, that light is almost bright light in particular, is almost like a toxin because it can suppress one of the most powerful chemoprotective antioxidants that your own body makes. I think that's a really true and bold statement. It's basically light after sunset is carcinogenic. Wow. Yeah. So effectively, there's the um, what's that nurse's health study, like the study of so many tens of thousands of women in Boston this a while back. And they looked at a lot of different metrics, a lot of outcomes. But they did notice that women that worked overnight shifts, the nurses that worked overnight shifts, which kind of by definition meant they had this suppression of melatonin because they were in daylight conditions at night. They had higher rates of breast cancer. So that's a little. And I think we have some other evidence to back this up at this point. But so basically, when you don't get your melatonin at night, you're not taking care of those nascent cancers around the body. You're not, your immune system, it, it basically is turned on with melatonin. That's why everyone's like, hey, I was sick last night, but now I feel better. And then it sunset and they're like, I kind of feel sick again. Hmm. We all go through that and we don't realize it's because your immune system um, will dial up with melatonin and actually do the work it needs to do. And that's also a good design because you want to be less sick feeling during the day so you can function. And then at night, you kind of want to go retreat and fight off the illnesses. Yeah. I mean, God, sleep is so, so amazing. Melatonin, <coughs> melatonin also, uh, it is involved, it activates brown fat. It was recently revealed in the literature. It's a gatekeeper in the process known as autophagy, which is, uh, you know, when your cells clean house, it's sort of like the condo method for your cells. Mm-hmm. KonMari, the KonMari method. Yep, yep. Um, the garbage truck's going through the streets of your brain being like, oh, look at all this trash. Get it out of here. I know. There's one other thing on cortisol worth bringing up, which is that um, this concept of overtired, which I never understood until I had a kid. Um, I never had heard that word. And then when I heard that word in the context of having a kid, I was like, that can't possibly be a thing. Overtired. You just get tired and then more tired. <clears throat> but... What you learn when you have a kid is that they have tired signs. They'll yawn. They'll rub their eyes. (coughs) 
they'll rub their eyes. They'll kind of like show you that they're sleepy and it looks so cute and so sweet. It's actually a total emergency. And when you see a kid that's tired, you have to change their diaper and swaddle them and put like this pile of dynamites in the crib and then exit yourself from the situation. Because if you miss that sweet spot when they're perfectly tired, then they're going to get overtired, which is a secretion of cortisol. <clears throat> and you start to, like for a kid, they're crying inconsolably. They're arching their back. They're emanating heat. And of course, it happens to adults too. So we start to recognize our tired signs. And then you can recognize your overtired signs too. <clears throat> is that why when you delay sleep, you get like almost like a second wind. Exactly. It's the second wind. It's the tired but wired. It's the, I was falling asleep on the couch one minute and now I'm doing projects and now I'm tossing and turning, trying to fall asleep. Yeah. And I, all of a sudden you can't sleep when you were just falling asleep on the couch like 10 to 20 minutes ago. Because you have cortisol coursing through your veins at this point. Because basically, and I think this is a good design too. I love the ancestral mentality, like to make sense of why do our bodies respond in certain ways to certain situations. <clears throat> and I think that Basically, if you didn't go to bed when you were tired, you probably had a good reason for that. Like tonight's the war or the great migration. There's something you're on night shift duty, whatever it is. So your body, like this eager, zealous employee that it is, is like, I will help you stay awake all night. I will secrete cortisol. I'll suppress melatonin. Let's do this. And that's fine when it's the great migration and it just doesn't work in our modern life where we're basically artificially awake in the evening because we have addictive devices that make us want to stay up just a little bit later. And then we end up overtired every night. Wow. We've <laughs> covered so much. I mean, we cover, we've covered lifestyle and dietary modifications to fight depression. We talked about anxiety, you know, limiting caffeine, keeping your blood sugar stable. Um, is there anything else you want to add? Because we're almost out of time, but man, I feel like I keep talking to you for hours. Mm, so, well, let's see. One thing we need to talk about is community. And mm. <clears throat> I called melatonin the endangered species of modern life, but I actually think it's community. Wow. And that's the secret sauce to who is actually healthy and happy and maintains brain function late into life and, it, and people who are fulfilled. And it's kind of like it is about our social connections full stop. And I think that that's something people have to work really hard at and practically at in modern life because modern life just creates all of this isolation into our silos and our McMansions and our SUVs and we're not getting out and connecting. And this one's easier said than done. Like I love to solve problems with health and it's easier to say, hey, take a spoonful of almond butter to keep your blood sugar stable. But how do you guide somebody in making friends? Um, it's tougher. But I, one thing I found in my own life is to really lower my standards for how I host people. Um, so like some people think hosting means you like break out the fine china and you go grocery shopping and you cook a meal for people and you like light a candle. And that would be lovely. I love when people host me in that way, but it's not practical or realistic when you're busy. So I think you lower your standards. What we do in my household is we're like, come over, we'll be ordering takeout, the end. And we basically just open our front door. That's the degree of effort that we do. We don't even clean up. So it's like, <clears throat> if you can start to get comfortable with having people over to a messy home to eat takeout food, good quality takeout food. Um, and then you're having a social connection with a really low activation energy. So you're just making it, it's just more readily possible in your life. Yeah. That's uh, I, one of my goals right now I have like a, like an, an apartment in West Hollywood, but my, my goal is to have a, like a house or a, you know, just like a space where I can entertain and have people over. Cause that's actually like one of my favorite things to do is to like cook with friends. Yeah. I, right now I cook a lot with my brothers, but they don't, you know, they don't really cut it in terms of conversation. <laughs> you know. <laughs> 
Um, well, I live in New York City. We have no dining room table to speak of, and we host people multiple times a week. We sit on couches and like a beanbag chair on the floor. So there you go. It's it, it, nothing fancy. Yeah. You just need some kind of like setting where people can gather. Love it. Super important. That's a big part of the equation. Um, cool. Well, what are you? Where's what's next for you? You're working on a book. You said working on a book on anxiety. Um, <clears throat> doing my private practice, and then I'm doing online groups now. I realized like my private practice has a wait list until like 2045, and so now I have these groups, which I thought was going to be so weird because it's like in virtual Zoom land. But it ends up being in certain ways better than individual treatment with me because there's a community effect, and so people are there supporting each other people feel less alone in their suffering. It's a beautiful thing. So that's that's kind of what I'm building these days. That's awesome. You know, in 2018, sales of, uh, of books related to anxiety were up like huge at Barnes & Noble. So you're going to, I mean, it's going to sell. We've got a situation. Yeah, we've got yeah. a situation. Yeah. That's the thing. Yeah. So I'm excited for yours. I mean, if anybody's like positioned to like write a book, you know, uh, on, on dietary and lifestyle means of being less anxious, I think it's you. Yeah, I mean, it's going to be about how do you be less anxious? And then also that last remaining piece, how do we honor that and actually listen to it? Because I think sometimes the people who are most anxious, these are our artists and our intuitive people, and they're sensitive, and they're canaries in the coal mine, to use a Kelly Brogan term, right? They are sensing for us what's really amiss in the world and helping guide us all. Yeah, true that. Well, I got one last question for you before we get to that. How can listeners uh, connect with you on social media? Where where are where is Ellen Vora to be found on the interwebs? Sure, I'm all over the interwebs. I'm at Ellen Vora MD, and my website ellenvora.com has tons of resources and free content. I'm in the business of just putting all the information out there that I can spread the gospel that there's a different way to think about mental health. Love that. Well, thanks so much for your time. The last question that gets asked to everybody who comes on the show, what does it mean to you to live a genius life? Yeah. So somebody said something that really made me laugh recently, which was they're like, Five minutes ago, I was an asshole. <laughs> and I feel like I really like the idea that at any point in time, you can look back and like, you know what, five minutes ago, I was really an asshole. And the fact, just the, the humility and the openness to constantly grow and change and improve. And I think that it's great to look back and think like, I didn't get it five minutes ago. Now I'm even a little bit better five minutes later. And I think the key to this is staying deeply connected to people because People are who help us grow and you're not just connected to people, but open to being influenced, opening to have your mind changed by people. Yeah. Would you say that you're always learning? Are, we all are, right? Yeah. A thousand percent. I mean, it's like my favorite thing to do is to like learn something new. Yeah. Um, I feel like I learned a lot over the, over the course of the last hour. What's the last thing that you learned? The last thing that I learned... Ooh, I wasn't prepared for that question. <laughs> Just think about like a fact that you uh, – <clears throat> Oh, sure. Not, not to put you on the spot, but like the last, you know, like thing that yeah. like, blew your mind. You were like, wow. So I was listening to a podcast this morning. Um, I've been prepping for this podcast partly by listening to your podcast, partly by listening to other good podcasts. And I've been listening to the greats like Ezra Klein and Krista Tippett and all these people. And they had this whole conversation about how um, – 
I think social media in some ways is just how we need to feel witness these days because we aren't held in community. We don't have the village around us. We're not part of churches. We're not part of the Rotary Club. Like we basically just aren't feeling witnessed in our lives because we're so siphoned off. And so you have to like put your picture of your baby out there so that it feels like a village is being like, look at your cute baby that you brought home from the hospital. And no shame in that. Like I put the picture of my baby when I came home from the hospital. But I think that it just speaks to the fact that like we as humans, social creatures, we need to feel held in community. We need to feel witnessed. And social media like only half scratches that itch and mostly does a bad job with it. And so to seek this out in our real life, to basically find the people in our lives that do help us feel supported and seen and where we can be vulnerable and just lean into that as much as possible. Powerful words to close on. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Max. This was a pleasure. And to all you guys out there in podcast land, I'll catch you on the next episode. Peace. Peace.